It is not Tech Tuesday, it is in fact Tech Wednesday with Scott Yates. He is the founder of MyTrafficNews.com, which was eventually folded into Traffic.com. He is the founder of Legislative Database, and most recently he is the founder of BlogMutt. And the reason I say this is Tech Wednesday and not Tech Tuesday is because Tech Tuesday is a segment he does every week on 9 News, where he profiles a new tech company. A company that is solving some problem that exists in society, and he tells the world about them. And what's funny is he doesn't tell these companies that he's going to profile them in advance. And we get into that in this week's episode, and we talk about why. And that dovetails nicely into one of my favorite concepts, and we don't mention it explicitly in this week's episode, but it's one I've mentioned a number of times on this show. It's called the Johari Window. And what the Johari Window is, it's a way of sort of understanding yourself. And understanding the way that people perceive you. Basically what it is, fundamentally, and I'll, I'll be quick about this, but there's four quadrants. The first quadrant is stuff that everyone knows, including you. Stuff you know about yourself and stuff people know about you. For instance, about me, most people would say that uh, I am Caucasian, right? That's something I know, that's something everyone else knows. I have blondish hair, right? That's in quadrant one. That's the stuff that everyone knows. Quadrant two is stuff that you know about yourself that others don't know yet. So what you choose to reveal comes out of that second quadrant. Uh, some people don't know that I host a podcast. Some people don't know that uh, one of my second cousins was a Bond girl, right? She was in a movie, I think, called For Your Eyes Only. She was also in a movie called Ice Castles, the one with the blind ice skater uh, with Robbie Benson came out in the early 80s. Anyway, that's my cousin. Some people don't know that. And so that's quadrant two. Quadrant four, I'm going to skip real quick and come back to quadrant three, but quadrant four is stuff no one knows. It's stuff I don't know about myself. It's stuff that people don't know about me. Quadrant three is the most interesting one to me. It's stuff I don't know about myself, but that other people know about me. And to me, that's always the most fascinating window. When someone reveals something about you that you did not realize or know about yourself. Some people are very uncomfortable with this concept. I happen to love it. I love self-discovery. And... Self-discovery can come frequently when it comes through the eyes of someone else. So, on Tech Tuesday, Scott Yates is kind of operating that third quadrant of the Johari window. The quadrant that says, hey, I was on your website, I've heard about your company, here's how I would describe it. And he tells a great anecdote of a programmer of one of these companies, his mom coming to him and saying, I finally understand what you do now. He couldn't explain it to his own mother, Scott Yates had to go on TV and explain it to her, that is the Johari window functioning magnificently. What else can I say? Okay, Scott and I talk about a number of things. We talk about his entrepreneurial track record, which is tremendous. Blogmutt is a great company, and you should check them out on the web, blogmutt.com. And my traffic news, basically Scott was done being a journalist and decided to try a startup, and we go through some tales of the startup trenches. But most notably, Scott is trying to end the tyranny of the time change. He's trying to lock the clock, as it were. Hashtag lock the clock. And basically, he wants states to decide for themselves. Are we going to be on daylight savings time? Or are we going to be on standard time? Which one makes the most sense for our state? And then basically just saying, you're going to leave it like that all year. Whatever you choose, we are not going through the time change. And he talks about how deadly the time change is. Deadly, I tell you. Deadly. The time change is deadly. And he goes into a number of reasons for why it is so deadly. Incidences of heart attack, of stroke, of traffic fatalities, those all go up right around the time change. So if that ain't reason enough to change it and, and lock the clock, I don't know what is. But we talk about his efforts there. We get into the history of why Daylight Savings Time even came to be in the first place. And overall, this is just a delightful conversation. And I got to give a shout out to Daryl Proctor, who hooked me up with Scott Yates. 
I'd never met Scott before, but Daryl knew him. Daryl Proctor is someone I know through, uh, you know, my social circle and my professional life. And so big thanks to Daryl for hooking me up. He also hooked me up last week with Brad Swartzwelter. That was a great episode where we talked about the Winter Park Ski Train and Hyperloop and Maglev Trains. Uh, Daryl is a terrific guy, and I cannot thank him enough for, for getting me two great guests. So thank you very much, Daryl. Okay, no plugs here at the beginning. Let's get to this week's episode. It's number 131. This is Scott Yates. He is an entrepreneur, founder of MyTrafficNews.com, Legislative Database, and Blogmut. He recently stepped aside as CEO for Blogmut, and he's the guest here on the John of All Trades podcast. Scott Yates' episode starts right now. I will look at my handy-dandy watch and tell you exactly I was biking for 27 minutes. <laughs> okay. Does it give you distance, too? Yes. Really? Yes. It was... Oh, it doesn't on this screen. I'd have to go over to the other screen. Okay. Yeah, that's <laughs> whatever works. Yeah. But uh, yeah. your watch looks like it's from the future, which, you know, if uh, if we're using Back to the Future 2 as our uh, our sort of understanding of time, which I do, right? you know, uh, that takes place entirely in 2015, which is now wholly in the past. So right. we are living in the future as far as I'm concerned. That makes sense to me. Absolutely. Yeah, which is uh, which is weird because when I was growing up, you watch that movie, and there's flying cars, you know, there's hoverboards, right. there's uh, there's uh, holograms that exist in real life, and you're going, wow. As an eight year old kid, when I saw this movie, I thought, this is what the future looks like. And we get here, and I'm like, where are the flying cars? Right, right, <laughs> right. Yeah, we don't have the future we were promised. Right. It's kind of like uh, I think the Jetsons took place in 1992. Right. Um, yeah. And we don't have any of that stuff. Yeah. No, which, you know. There's a, there's a great scene from the West Wing. I'm a big West Wing nerd. Oh, sure. Where you and my wife says, uh, you know, where's the uh, where's the future that we were promised? Where's the flying cars? <laughs> and, and Josh Lyman says, well, the Internet. And, uh, and, and Leo McGarry says something like, uh, you know, annoying emails and porn. You can have it. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. Let's go back to the past. Right. <laughs> it's too funny. Um, but I bring that up and I use that sort of as, as the frame from which we start because Scott Yates, you are the CEO, former CEO, right? Former of, CEO. Of Blogmut. Right. And before that, you had another startup, uh, My Traffic News. And then there was one in the middle there too, yeah. Oh, really? What yeah. was the one in the middle? The one in the middle was called Legislative Database. Okay. Yeah. So, I mean, you're, you're sort of, uh, when I think of Blogmut and when I think of My Traffic News, especially at the time, those are looking to solve modern problems using tech. Is that fair to say? Yeah, absolutely. I mean, my traffic news was a classic case of, of you know, being stuck in traffic. And this is, you know, it, it feels like such olden times now. It's hard to remember what it was like before the iPhone. But, you know, there was a time when you couldn't get traffic while you were driving. And you really couldn't even get good traffic information when you were sitting at your desk at work. <laughs> and, it just, and it just bugged me. It just bugged me that I would get out, would go, you know, I had all this information at my fingertips, and then I'd go get in my car and sit in this annoying traffic jam. And it's like, if I would have just gotten an email that said, look, your drive is really bad, and if you wait 20 minutes, it's going to be a lot better. <laughs> and so I went looking for that, and I looked hard just as a consumer, sure. looking to see if I could find that. And it wasn't there. And then I kept Sort of puzzling on it, puzzling on it, and ended up starting a company, and uh, and ran that company for five years and sold it. So when was this uh, time in the primordial soup when we couldn't <laughs> even get? It, it was uh, two thousand one was when we launched. Okay, and then uh, uh, sold it in two thousand six. Okay, that actually makes sense to me. Uh, I was in college at that time, and many of my friends didn't even have cell phones. You know, I sure, yeah. I was one of the ones, the first one to to get a cell phone in our crew. A lot of my friends still had pagers, right? So it's not even it's it's not that surprising to to think about that. Although, given that that was only fifteen or so years ago, it's amazing the leap forward that we've made in that time. Oh yeah, absolutely. And I I love ways, and I you know I think it's terrific, and I feel like I'm sort of the spiritual godfather of of ways because we were sort of early in the crowdsourcing of traffic information because mm -hmm. we, you know, there was some spots where there was good information about what was going on with the roads in Denver, but a lot of spots were just blank. And so we ended up building up kind of a little core of volunteers of people that 
had a view of, I remember one guy in particular that had a view of the turnpike uh, between Denver and Boulder, and he was up in Broomfield. There was just never any good traffic information. (laughs) And we would hear about an accident, and I would write to him and say, hey, is the traffic bad? And he'd write, and I'd say, no, it's flowing fine. And then he'd write me back 10 minutes later and say, oh, yeah, it's jammed up solid. (laughs) And so, you know, it was an early version of our crowdsourcing. It's a very analog way of doing it, too. You know, you use whatever tool you can use, you know, and, yeah. and because every card didn't have a cell phone in it, that was what was available. And so Waze takes that another step forward, sure. several steps forward with using the data. And Google now, you know, since they bought Waze, has a, does a good job of incorporating. That was always what I was thinking would be the perfect thing because the cell phone towers know how fast you're moving. Right. And so if you could just sort of anonymize that and turn that into a thing, I, th- I thought that would be great. And so... That you know that I, that was my Jetsons future was imagining that, <laughs> and here we are, right? Yeah. And okay, so what's funny listening to you describe this is you were a journalist by trade, right? Is, is that correct? Yeah, I got a I got a degree from the J School at NYU. Okay, good. As as I think about it, I have a very similar degree. I got a degree in speech communication from Colorado State, okay. both bachelor's and master's. I don't think even in this day and age, I would know how to start you know, creating something like that, um, that, that seems to incorporate technology and crowdsourcing. And, uh, how did, how did you go about sort of transitioning from being a journalist into, uh, the space that you went into? Uh, badly, I guess would be the <laughs> badly, <laughs> you know, a lot of stuff that I did was just, uh, just ham handed and, and we didn't, we didn't, you know, it was a great little business. I loved it. Uh, and it grew, but not that great. And it, you know, we were just in Denver when we sold uh, traffic.com in 2006. So like every mistake that you could make, uh, I made really? along the way. Yeah, absolutely. But I mean, the one thing I did was I just kept going and you know, it does seem like a quaint time back then there, like now we have such a great startup culture. We've got podcasts like yours. We've got lots of great blogs. We've got yep. lots of great stuff. In those days, it was just like, it was there was nothing right there was you know uh people said oh go talk to the uh what's it the small business administration down from the <laughs> you know like the federal government thing right when i actually did go and talk to a guy and he had no idea about the business part he had had suggestions about accounting and stuff like that but it was just like i was just making the stuff up and really it was just i just kept going and uh and just kept asking people the the skill that i had as a reporter that you've got as a as a blog as a podcaster is just i didn't have any fear about going and talking to anybody right you know i i was working at the durango herald tiny little paper and it was a very common thing for me to go up and say you know uh, governor, what about this? And, you know, Senator, right. what about this? Ask people you don't know very pointed questions. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> and, and so, so that I didn't have a fear of. So I was, so it was very easy for me to go to, so I had a couple of partners that really made it possible to launch. One was RTD. Oh, okay, nice. So I had a couple of great conversations, you know, and I started with the guy that was the general manager of, of RTD at the time. Uh, and then I had a conversation with some, with the top guy at Nine News. And and both of those, you know, I knew somebody that knew somebody that got me an introduction. Wait, who, was that Roger Ogden? That was Roger Ogden at the time, yeah. Visionary guy. Uh, incredible guy. And I know him because my dad worked at Nine News in the 70s. Oh, wow. Back when Nine News was last place across the board. Oh, interesting. At all times. Uh, yeah. So he was there in the 70s. Roger Ogden came in, came in transformed the, inculture, the entire right. culture. Uh, right. And, and and made nine news the leader that it is to this day. I know, like talk about a legacy, like it's just amazing. Yeah, you you, uh, you should have him on this podcast. He'd be a great guest. I would love to have Roger Ogden yeah. on this podcast. That yeah. would be amazing. I'll, I'm happy to connect you. Okay, let's do that. Uh, but he, uh, uh, so I had a talk with Roger Ogden, and and so we got nine news as uh, as a media partner, and then uh, got RTD to actually sponsor, and um, um, and and was able to get the funding we needed, and. And go to town. And you built it up and you managed yeah. to sell it. I, was was there an offer that was too good to refuse or were you looking to sell it? Well, um, let's see. I guess you can cut out the well and the um. I don't know. Maybe you want to keep that for <laughs> verisimilitude. Uh, it was a little bit of a combination of, of things. You know, we were, we were an undercapitalized small business. Uh-huh. And we were in a technology space 
I think it was just the universe kind of came together and told me that it was a good deal to do. Yeah. Traffic.com at the time was a standalone operation. Uh, they operated mostly in the East Coast. They wanted to have a presence in Denver. They didn't have a relationship with Nine News. They didn't have a relationship with Colorado Department of Transportation, and I did have those relationships. Sure. And so, you know, the chances are they would have come in and eaten my lunch eventually anyway. <laughs> and so... Once we started having the conversation, it, it was great, positive conversations. You know, it wasn't a blockbuster transaction, but, you know, it was a base hit of a sale, and so moved on. I like the analogy that you chose as, as a base hit because you'll hear people talk, not everything has to be a home run. Right. Like, and, and someone told me this when I was seeking career uh, advice from them. I'm like, look, I don't have any home runs on my resume. I'm looking to make this change. They go, look, put the doubles and triples on there. Right. Okay. Because right. you need to show that you've had some base hits here, that you have some experience. It, it doesn't all have to be mind blowing numbers, but the fact that you actually did it and that it was successful, that matters to people. Right. Right. Yeah. And just starting something from nothing is hard to do. That's a big deal. Yeah. And it's something that I talk about at length on this podcast is people who make the leap. And uh, I, I listened to uh, another show that you were on and uh, the quote that, that the host used in that one was, um, I can't remember what it was, but I use, I use an analog of that quote. I'm sure it was brilliant. And <laughs> clearly since I can't remember it, <laughs> but uh, the one that I say on this show all the time is leap in the net will appear. Right. And that was given to me by Will Matthews, who uh, is just a tremendously inspiring person. What I'm curious about is you talked about sitting in traffic and understanding that how do I not know what the traffic is doing and, and how do I not have capability of this? I'm going to go out and solve this problem. Right. That's a great impetus for the why, but that doesn't get to the existential why. You know what I mean? Oh, I see. Yeah. Why, why leap into uh, the startup space? Why make the transition, uh, say, out of journalism? Is that what you were doing at the time? Yeah. Yeah, I was. You know, for I mean, I don't know if you're looking for an answer for everybody or just for me. I, I, just for you. I mean, I would I wouldn't dare speculate about anyone else. <laughs> yeah, I, I, there were there were a number of factors that played into it. One of them was, you know, I was in journalism, and it wasn't hard to see the writing on the wall that right. the the business model for journalism was going to be changing pretty fast. Thanks a lot, Craigslist. Yeah, yeah. I know it's rough, and I and I miss the glory days. I, my wife and I watched uh, all the President's Men the other night oh, with uh, Robert Redford and yeah, yeah. and Dustin Hoffman, and, and it was uh, you know it was an amazing movie, and just you know part of it was you know funny looking at these guys smoking in the newsroom, but <laughs> but the other part was you know these guys would have a week to work on a story, and and yeah. these days you know. Guys have to, you know, they have a week to work on a story as long as they do three other stories a day and 15 <laughs> tweets and blah, blah, blah. Yeah. So part of it was seeing the writing on the wall there. Part of it was, I don't know. I, I mean, maybe it's just I, I had a, a, enough of a, I, I, I don't know what the right words are. It, you, you need to have, be a little, uh, a little bit of a moron to, <laughs> to do it because, you know, like all the odds are against you. So many businesses fail. <laughs> But in a bigger picture, like, the world really needs new companies to get created. Yeah. Like, that's the thing I've sort of discovered is in this process is, you know, there's lots of great stuff that helps, you know, companies that are established grow and growth stage companies to get bigger and, and bigger companies to go public. There's lots of infrastructure around all of that. Right. But there's not a lot of, you know, to create something out of nothing – like you need primordial soup for that. Right. And, and so what goes into that primordial soup, it's hard to say, but really I can send you the stats and you can share it on your, on your Twitter feed or whatever you want. We're actually at historic lows for new business creation in the really? United States right now. I know everybody I tell that to is totally shocked and surprised. And I was shocked and surprised when I heard the news, but it is, but it's true. And I think we have such a great startup culture, but I think there's a little bit of a negative influence in our society because people see the huge successes. Mm -hmm. This is getting back to your base hit coming. Right. People see the huge successes and they think, well, I got this idea for a business, but it's, you know, it's not a Facebook. <laughs> right. And so I'm not even going to try it. Or they think I have a business, but I really need venture capital to get it going because I hear so much about venture capital, venture capital, venture capital, VC, VC, and they can't even get a meeting with a VC. And so they get dispirited. And so they stop. Right. And the thing that I had, and I, I think a lot of people maybe don't want to look like a moron, and so they don't want to start right. a business. And the thing I would say is it's okay because if you start it and fail, 
this is America. You know, you're not going to end up on the streets. <laughs> no right? one like, cares. Nobody cares, first of all. And you probably have enough buffer in your life that you're not going to end up in a soup line right. tomorrow. Right. right. Like if you've got a couple of months of buffer, then that's enough time to really test out and try some stuff and be able to get something to, to see if you've got an idea there that's going to work. And then once you get going, the world wants you to succeed. Yeah. You know, it, it's, it's like anything else. Um, my friend told me he used to play football in high school. And I would say, are you nervous? Were you nervous before games? And he said, oh, absolutely, every single game. Until you hit someone. And then you hit someone, and then you're just in it. And you're right. just playing. Right. Once, like, just taking that step to start it is terrifying. Right. And I, I think you're right. I think people are afraid of wearing that scarlet letter of failure. Right. There are no letters on any of us. Right. Like, you never know. Right. And when I started my company, you know, I thought, oh, God, like, <clears throat> it, this is all me now. It's on me. Right. And the level of responsibility associated with starting something like that is intense. And it's it's a burden that I don't know if everyone is ready to sort of to bear. You need like you get to a point where you're willing to take it on. But it's also kind of terrifying. But the comforting thought I I had was I have a good enough resume to where I could go back and get a corporate job if I wanted one. Right, right. Like there are lots of jobs out there. You you don't have to you're not married to it. Right. Um, yeah, I, I I agree, except with one caveat. And the caveat is, if you have a business that does well and sells, uh, then you can't go back and get a job. You just can't. <laughs> it's just right. they don't let you back in the club. Uh, <laughs> people, you know, everybody says they like entrepreneurial thinking and they like disruptive, blah, 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 blah. Right. And it's all crap. It's all total crap. People don't want disruptive forces inside the building. And, uh, and so accurate. if you have a business and build it and succeed, you're never going to get a regular job again. So just, you know, fair warning that's out there. Well, and nor would you, well, and I'm saying if you, if you fail in that early going, right. Like, you know, is just go back and, you know, get a job working for someone else. That's fine. Yeah. But to your point, it's, it's probably true that, yeah, they're not going to have you back, but more importantly, you're not going to want to go back. Yeah. Yeah, I don't know. I, this is something I've thought a lot about because sometimes I think I would like to go back. Would you really? Yeah, sometimes I think, yeah, I could just you know have a job and show up at nine and leave at five and let somebody else do the thing. Uh, and and I I think that that looks sort of romantic and cool. Sure. Uh, I'm guessing the reality of that may not actually work out. My suspicion is no. Yeah. Um, yeah. Because almost everyone I've talked to who ended up on this side, you know, right? This side that we're talking about, this side that that we've both made the leap on. A few of them have tried to go back and they go, this is awful. Like, I, right. I, I can't do this anymore. I, right. I, I can't work for someone else, which is both a blessing and a curse, I suppose, Yeah. Uh, depending on how you're wired. Yeah. I want to get back to something else uh, that, that I think is pertinent here and will we'll dovetail nicely. You talked about when you started My Traffic News. Mm -hmm. And the hardest thing is getting the raw material going. Like, that, that that's the toughest part. Just right. you have an idea. Okay, what do I do now? How do I take the steps? Right. A lot of people come to me, and this is one of the things I was most excited about to talk to you about, was uh, BlogMut. Right. So you started BlogMut. Uh, people always have ideas for blogs. Pe right. People always have uh, ideas for ad campaigns, new new ways, new directions they can take their businesses in. Right. The raw material is the hardest part. I know that people come to me and expect me to generate the raw material. Right. And I'm happy to do that. That's actually where I'm happiest. Like right. when I'm creating and it, it's hard, it's taxing because you have to draw it from within you. But once you have something out there, a client or whoever can then edit, tailor, uh, make it fit whatever they're doing yes. much, much easier. Right. Um, but generating it out of whole cloth is nigh impossible for some people. And right. given, given the schedule demands that they have. Right. So uh, that's a long way of saying you go for my traffic news, mm -hmm. then you go to legislative database, which we can come back to that if you want. But let's, sure. let's talk about uh, BlogMut. Sure. Then you go to BlogMut, right? What was the impetus for starting that? The end of legislative database was not as great as uh, the end of my traffic news had some issues. And if you want to hear about that, you got to buy me a beer. <laughs> uh, so, you know, I needed to do something. And uh, it was really just... You know, talking to people about, you know, like, like what the state of the world was, uh, and, and working it through with the guy that I started the company with. Because my second company had ended, and I had a lot of friends that were in business by this point, and I just knew, you know, I just had a bunch of friends and whatever, and a bunch of them would call me up because they knew that I, you know, had time, and they would say, and this was sort of early for 
search engine optimization, all that. Right. They sometimes didn't even know what that was, right? <laughs> like they would just say, you know, hey, I've got this business and I don't know how it is that people will find me if they look <laughs> on Google. Like, right. and so how do I do that? A basic visibility problem. Yeah. And so the idea that I came up with was uh, a terrible idea, which was uh, build kind of a crowdsourced SEO solution where okay. you have a bunch of people who were SEOs on one side and then a bunch of small businesses, and then the SEO advice would come somehow through the platform, which was a terrible idea for lots of reasons. <laughs> the, but in the process of the research for it, even then, so this is six years ago now, even then, it was becoming really clear that really the only thing you need to do to have good search results is write a blog and write a blog as often as you possibly can right. and have it be good, have it be readable, have it be something that's engaging and something that the search engines will look at. And so once I realized that, it's like, okay, don't be crowdsourcing for SEO. Just do the crowdsourcing on the one thing that they can't do. There's so much software that will do yeah. everything else. All of the other parts of marketing have software, but the actual content creation is the one thing you just need a human being for. Yep. And so, you know, because of my background in journalism, I thought, well, I know about writers. I know how they think and work a little bit, and I can put together a crowd of writers. And, and in the early days, I knew if I was going to have trouble with the building a crowd of writers that I could sit there and write the blog <laughs> Just myself. bang them out, right? Just bang them out to be able to do that. And I did that, if, you know, for a while. And then, <laughs> a and time then, or 12? Yeah, I mean, it was, I, I don't know how many, I don't know, it was a couple of months that I was still writing, po like we would send the post on, on uh, Thursdays, and so every Wednesday night I was banging out lots of posts. And then I realized, you know, like when we had 20 customers, I could write five blogs, and it was terrific. When we got to like 100 customers, it was like, okay, <laughs> what I really need to do. pretty unsustainable, yeah. Yeah, I need to work on building up the crowd of writers. So we just worked on building up the crowd, and now we have more than 15,000 writers. Jeez, 15,000 yeah. writers? Yeah. And you, you recently, was Blogmont acquired? No, or, no, no. Uh, or did you just step aside from I it? just stepped aside from day to day. So I'm okay. still the board chairman. Okay, I'm I got still you. involved that way, but I'm not involved day to day. So I went out and found a new CEO I, I with some help with, from a little team that my co-founder and then uh, a little team we assembled. We found a new CEO. He actually found us, reached out to us through the transom, and um, a guy named Steve Pockross, and He's doing the job day to day now and doing a great job. Wow. Well, I, I mean, I'll tell you, everything I've heard and everything I've read about Blogmutt is that it's a great place for writers because you guys actually treat writers well. You don't treat writers yeah. like a factory farm or a commodity. Right. And I mean, is that as a result of, I mean, is that an answer to what's happening in journalism? Well, it's a place for people. You know, I mean, it used to be in journalism, you could start out at, there were lots of small papers and there was lots of places that you could start out and there's not a lot of places that you can get experience writing anymore. You right. know, like, like, you know, there's that, uh, great Ira, Ira Glass piece. It's not part of the, uh, this American life. It's just a little interview he gave about how to get good at something. Yeah. And, and the punchline is basically just to do it a lot. Yeah. You know, uh, his point is a lot of people have good taste. And the taste is the thing that gets them into the game, but they realize that their own work isn't up to their own taste. <laughs> and so most people, when they're confronted with that fact, they just quit. Yeah. And so his point is, and I think it's a great point, is the only way to get through that is to do a lot of work. I can hear him pounding the desk. Do a lot of work. Yeah. You just have every week, every day. Just, just do over and over again. Over and over. And you'll go through a period of being not that great. Yeah. So I don't want to say the blog mat writers aren't that great. But a lot of them are early on, right? Yeah. And so it might take them, you know, three hours to write a post that I could probably write in 20 minutes. Mm -hmm. It's just bec it's not because I'm better or worse. It's just because I did it. I wrote so many stories yeah. for daily papers for so long. And so they're just getting that experience. Yeah. And so that's why – and so we understand that process. And, and just, you know, we, we appreciate writers for who they are and we understand that you know, the pay isn't going to be the best pay in the world, but we're going to treat you with respect. We're going to, you know, we're going to create an environment where your work is really valued. Yeah. What else can you ask for, really, especially if you're early on in your career? I remember uh, the first press release I tried to write for, uh, I think it was my second job. <laughs> my boss took a look at it and he goes, okay, nope, you're going to need to go and talk to Paul. Paul's going to tell you how to write a press release. He's going to teach you the inverted triangle. Right. Um, and... I'm like the inverted triangle because I didn't go to a J school or anything. Right. I didn't, I didn't get a degree in PR. Mine was in communication. So I had raw writing talent, Right. but no sort of 
practical skills, you know, and it takes time to really get those and hone those in. I could write a press release now in my sleep. Right. Right. Like, you know, I know, I know how it's supposed to look. I know what a headline is supposed to have in it. Right. And I, I wouldn't have done that just with, uh, you know, theoretically, you know, just reading stuff that I liked uh, on the internet, you know, right. writers that I admired. Almost everyone is banging out work that no one else wants to do. Right. Because someone has to do it. Right. Right. And I, I think that's such a valuable lesson. You know, there are blog posts for companies that will probably make your, your eyes roll back in your head with how dull they are. Yeah. Is that fair to say? Absolutely. And, you know, but they still need content. They still need people to find them. The, the content that, that is created is going to be valuable and interesting to someone. Right. Even if it's not to you personally. Right. Right. Which, I, I mean, you're, you're, filling, you're filling a niche. Have competitors come up as a result of the success of Blogmont? Yeah. Uh, yeah. And there were a couple kind of competitors before and there, there's, there's a couple that have come up that are, you know, basically in the same realm, but, um, but Blogmont still has a, has a pretty good little niche and, you know, I mean, yeah, you're exactly right. Like it, what you were saying before about just the creating the, the thing from, that's the hard part. And I think a lot of agencies are starting to really understand that and starting to outsource to companies like Blogmont because yeah. they understand that the value that they bring is strategy and the value that they bring is sort of the overall direction. Mm -hmm. And that's, you know, that's a high dollar service. Right. And if they're charging a high dollar for a high dollar service for writing the blogs and it takes them forever to actually get the post <laughs> written, yeah. they're doing a disservice to the client, the disservice to themselves. Everybody's unhappy with it. And so if they can just come up with, you know, here's the direction we want a blog to go and then outsource that. Yeah. And having one writer on staff it is just a recipe for disaster. You know, like, I mean, some of these companies, you know, they're not sexy topics. No, uh, but they're still kind of fun, right? Like, right. I, I remember we had a we had a client that was a um, uh, it was scales that you would put in a warehouse. It was industrial scales, industrial strength scales, or whatever. And I thought, wow, that's fascinating. And if I was writing posts, I'd think, you know, I, w I would love to write one or two blog posts for these guys because I would love to know, like, what their deal is. Right. But if I had to write a post for them every week for a year, it's like, oh, I, that would, that's a would slow death. Kill my spirit. <laughs> but that's the advantage of having 15,000 writers. You got 15,000 people, one or two a month are going to come and say, Hey, I'd love to write a post about that because yeah. that'd be kind of fascinating. And so that, you know, people think that what they really want is somebody who really is going to get to know them and really understand them. And for some things, there is some value in that. But I think the opposite of the conventional wisdom is actually more true, which is, it's always good to have a fresh set of eyes look at it and oh, bring agree. a new voice to it. I, and I think it's a fallacy and a myth that we know ourselves well. I, I personally believe that you don't know as much about yourself as you think you do. Right. And having someone come in and be able to look at something that you've looked at all the time, just to your point, right. there's incredible value in that because you gain new insight not only about whatever it is you're writing about, but about yourself too. Right. Which right. Is, is fascinating to me. Yeah. A little example of that is, uh, and this is a little bit of shameless self-promotion too. One of the things I still do is uh, Tech Tuesday on Nine News. Yeah, I saw so you. So every Tuesday in the seven o'clock hour, I go and I profile a company. Well, I never tell the companies before I do them that I'm going to profile them. <laughs> really? <laughs> I never tell. Part of it is because you know, news, TV news. You know, if there's a big tornado or something, suddenly I oh get yeah, you're getting and, bombed. Yeah. And then they get, you know, it's like, oh, hey, where's the thing? You know, and so I don't want people to get. <laughs> but the other part is. And I don't usually say this to them, so maybe hope if, if you're hoping you're going to get covered by Nine News on Tech Tuesday, don't listen to the next part of the podcast because this is what I don't tell them. Most companies are pretty bad at telling their own story. Oh, God. And so, uh, I, I mean, one company I covered, I, I always remember this. I covered them. They weren't expecting it. This, I met the CEO later, and he said, oh, yeah, you guys covered us. It was great. I had a programmer who came in to my office and said, my mom saw us on TV. And she said, finally, son, I understand what it is you do. <laughs> like, her own son couldn't explain it to her. But once I explained it to her, then it made sense. So do I know these companies intimately? No, I'm just going off what's on their website. But I, I because I've told these stories so many times, right. I understand how to con you know, translate what the company does into something that people can yeah, understand. Yeah, you, you reconfigure it into something that's meaningful for someone else, which is at the heart of what we do as storytellers, as journalists, and right. as communications professionals. Right. And if you try to tell it about yourself, you get wrapped around the axle so fast about, you know, suddenly you're talking about, you know, verticals and, you know, 
whatever, all the right. all the crap, and it and it just makes the all the, the chaff, yeah, all the stuff, all the people at home just go complete. They just roll their eyes in the back of the head and walk away. Well, what's so funny too is, you know, people who have media relations campaigns that they come to you. When I worked at the PR agency, we had a bunch of media relations stuff come in, and. The dirty secret of, of PR companies is if you get a media relations campaign and they're looking to hire you, it's because your story is not all that compelling. Right. Right? I mean, you're looking for someone who is a professional and who maybe has some relationships to retell your story. And you'd go, okay, well, here's what I think the actual story is. And they'd go, no, no, but we're this way. And you go, thank you for your feedback. <laughs> this, <laughs> okay. is not, this is not going to get you coverage. Right. Like this is not the story that, that people want to hear or that is compelling to a readership. Right. Here's what I think it is. And there was always tension between client and agency sure. in that way because they say, no, we're this way. And you go, no, you're kind of this way. Right. Or this is what you've got that's sellable. And they go, well, that's not really the thing. And you go, but it is. And you're going back and forth. And it's, it's, a, it's a weird dance that you have to do. Yeah. You appease your client, but you need something that you can actually communicate to the media. Yeah. Yeah. And you want your client to be successful at the end of the day. And so you have to give them you know, your best counsel yep. and whether or not they want to hear it is the truth. Oh, yeah. Yeah. Um, okay. So I want to pivot here because sure. uh, I think I've buried the lead. One of the things I was most interested in talking to you about was you were currently sponsoring or working on legislation. Right. <laughs> yes. <laughs> to end daylight savings time. Yes. Is that accurate? Yes. That uh, my quixotic quest. <laughs> that's uh, that's yeoman's work here. Yeah. Um, and I say that as someone who has a two-year-old. Oh yeah. And an eight-month-old. Oh boy. And so they don't understand why we change the clocks. <laughs> yeah, they don't understand why it's light out when they go to bed now. Right. And uh, you go, no, but it's yeah, it's the time, and they go. No, I'm not tired yet. And you go, right. well, someone arbitrarily decided <laughs> to make it yeah. uh, an hour later than uh, than yeah. it was yesterday. Right, right. A Kaiser in World War One did that to him. Really? Yeah, yeah. yeah. I know everybody thinks that we have daylight saving time because of the farmers. I thought it, I thought it had to do with railroads. Personally, uh, clo- it, it, railroads is close to the truth. Railroads is why we have uh, time zones and uniform time. Oh, all right. Uh, and to this day, the controllers of daylight saving time is the Department of Transportation, which is a holdover to the fact that the railroads were the ones that wanted uniform time. Oh, okay. Because it used to be each town would set their own time based on when the sun was directly overhead. Oh. <laughs> and so okay. the trains would have to reset their clocks every few minutes as they're going from town to town. And, oh, yeah, and so it was impossible to keep schedules. Yeah. It, it didn't work. And so um, I, I had a professor uh, who taught a, a class called The Rhetoric of Everyday Life, which I thought was a terrific class. And we talked about uh, – we ended up talking about time and, and the concept of time and how it's in a way made up. It is. Um, I mean it's, it's thoroughly arbitrary. You know, He said if you were a farmer and the sun is here, uh, at some point later in the day it's going to be over here. Right. Who gives a shit what time, like, right, what, right. what the actual, like, right. Uh, yeah, to your point with your kid, your babies don't understand daylight saving time and cows, dairy farmers hate yeah. daylight saving time. Well, and he, and he said, um, daylight savings time, you know, it's not like, it's, it's not like, uh, we, we shift the time and the corn goes, okay, now I'm really gonna grow. <laughs> right. Um, which always stuck with me because I go, oh yeah, it is arbitrary. But he said, time zones, and you're right, it was time zones, uh, came about because, if you got two trains on a track, you yep. got to make sure that the time you're, you're all operating off the same sort of standard uniform clock. Right. But yep. you mentioned daylight savings time. It was a Kaiser in World War One. Yeah. Uh, there had been a lot of talk about daylight saving time. If you've ever been to Boston, uh, the Filene's department store is the, sort of the big one. Uh-huh. Uh, it, Lincoln Filene thought that if people had more time in the daylight after work, they would go shopping more. <laughs> and so he tried to get it in place, but they didn't get it to actually go. And then the war came. And then the Germans started doing it in World War One because they thought it would save fuel oil. Uh, okay. it, 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 the science wasn't 100% clear then, of course. Uh, and uh, I, you know, I have a theory that it was just a big damn distraction because the Germans weren't doing so well in the war. <laughs> uh, and so, but anyway, the Germans did it. The British, British and the Americans did it. Uh, when you're next year is the hundredth anniversary in America, 1918 okay. was the first wow. year, and then uh, and then it was suspended right after the war, and President Wilson thought it would be a good idea to keep having daylight saving time, mm. and he w- uh, so he vetoed the bill to get rid of it, and they overrode his veto. People hated <laughs> switching the clocks twice a year, and so they got rid of it, and it was gone until <laughs> wow. 
a little, that's a little uh, realistic background noise from a co-working space. And, 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 and dogs uh, are pissed off. Yeah, about daylight. Uh, dogs about hate daylight saving time, too. That's right. Clearly. Yeah. Uh, and then it came back in World War II, and then we've had versions of it ever since. Okay. Yeah. Wow. President Wilson, we will never forgive you. Yeah. Those, those of us who are parents of toddlers. Yeah. Yeah. No, uh, I mean, really, these days, the problem is the business interests are all pretty much aligned with having daylight saving time in the summer, and there isn't really a business interest with keeping the daylight saving time in the winter. Hmm. And so that's, for most states, what I advocate is that we keep daylight saving time year-round, and okay. that would be great for Colorado, but, it, you know... Change, it turns out, is hard and uh, get out. Yeah, and and convincing people. So I've testified in uh, four states so far this year, and uh, drives my wife a little bit crazy that I <laughs> spend time on this because it's a little it's a little odd. But I have to say, I feel like the tide is turning. I've been beating the drum on this for two or three years now, and this year, the science there's a lot more science that's come out about why changing the clocks is bad. Hmm. Uh, the press has been taking it a lot more seriously. Uh, I got a, had a nice story done about me in the New Yorker uh, that was that got it was a guy that actually wrote a book about time, the whole okay. book about just the notion of time, and we had a great, pretty nerdy time talk about <laughs> just what you say. Time is essentially just an agreement, right? Yeah. It's just what we all say it is, <laughs> and uh, and and once you realize that that's what time is, my point is, the time itself shouldn't be deadly. Huh. And the changing of the clocks really is deadly, and the science is getting more clear about that. So, anyway, thanks for letting me get on my soapbox. Of though. course. When you say deadly. No, deadly. Heart attacks go up. Strokes go up. People with epilepsy have se- increased seizures. Really? Uh, car accidents go up. Deadly car accidents go up. Uh, workplace accidents go up. Why? Uh, why? Uh, it gets it, various reasons for various ones, but uh, mostly it's a, it's a disruption to your circadian rhythm. Huh. It's, it's as if you have jet lag without the benefit of actually going to a place and understanding that the sun is going to be coming up at a different time. It's as if somebody snuck into your bedroom and changed your alarm clock without telling you. Which kind of happened. Is exactly what (laughs) happens, right? So because of that, and circadian rhythms, I found out in this book from this guy from The New Yorker, are a lot more complicated than we think they are. It's not just your brain. Like your liver has its own circadian rhythm. Yikes. And, And your heart too. Like, like, they all sort of operate on their own clocks. And so when you jolt the clock, yeah. uh, you're more likely to have a heart attack and die. You're more likely to have a stroke. And you're sort of disabled. And so there are a lot more deadly traffic accidents and workplace accidents. That sounds awful. Yeah. Uh. Yeah. We should do something about it. <laughs> <laughs> we should. So what is the process like? You said you've testified in four states. Yeah. Um, you know, obviously, Colorado has got to be at the forefront because you live here, right? Yeah, but we have, we have a problem in Colorado. What's that? Uh, Colorado Ski Country USA. Okay. I don't quite understand this, but they're of the opinion that they need more daylight before the lifts open in the winter to inspect the lifts, which to me is so – it's like – it's like we could buy them a flashlight and fix this, right? Like it's not that complicated of a problem, so, which makes me think they've got to have some other issue. There's got to be some other reason – and maybe it's just that they want people off the slopes and into the restaurants and bars earlier or something. I I really don't know. You haven't been able to crack the nut on that, huh? No. And and Colorado Ski Country has a very, very powerful lobby in Colorado. So the bill that went – you know, there were some other issues. But, but the bill that went before the state, Colorado Ski Country went and just said, you know, just kind of burped. <laughs> and and the legislature was like, oh, okay, you know, and backed off very quickly. <laughs> and so, uh, you know – there, so I'm work, I'm still working on it. I think that, you know, my goal is to really try to fix the whole country uh, okay. all at once. And so I, I, I've got some plans to try to, to do that state by state. Okay. But in the U.S., you have, is it two states that don't do daylight savings time? They just, Arizona and Hawaii. Arizona and Hawaii. Why do I feel like Indiana is among them? Uh, it used to be that half of Indiana didn't do it. Half of Indiana. Yeah, which was quite confusing. Yeah. That uh, led to another great West Wing clip. <laughs> <laughs> so, um, but they stay on standard time. Is that correct? No, Indiana now, like the rest of the country, is lockstep. No, no, no. But I mean, uh, Arizona, Arizona and Hawaii. Hawaii stay on standard time year round. 
But you're advocating for switching to daylight savings then. You're in. For, I, what I'm advocating is no clock changing. And then each state should pick the time zone that's most appropriate to that state. Okay. Uh, so hmm. you could make a case, for instance, that Nebraska should stay on what is currently its standard time year-round because it's at the far western edge of the central time zone. Hmm. So their sunsets are similar to what Denver's sunsets are. Their sunsets on standard time are similar to what Denver's are in daylight saving time. Okay. But that's up to the people in Nebraska. They can decide for themselves. Uh, my point is just pick a time and stick with it year-round. Okay. Lock the clock. Lock the clock is uh, hashtag lock the clock. Hashtag lock the clock. It took me three years to come up with that, and I didn't even come up with that. A a great state legislator up in Michigan came up with that. Uh, Origin story about this show. I did not come up with the name John of All Trades. My uh, my wife did. Oh, good. I was telling her the, the potential names I had for this show, and they all sucked. They were all terrible. I had one that I think was the least worst, and... My wife just goes, why don't you just call it John of All Trades? I go, damn it, that's a better name. <laughs> why did that not want – I'm like, that's the name of the show. That's she so said it just in passing. Just yeah. Like, you know, that's what we share. We have that in common. We have that bond because I the first name for Blogmut was Truly, which was uh, – How do you spell that? Truly, terrible name. T-U-R-U-L-Y. Oh, that sucks. Yeah, that was horrible. <laughs> uh, and what was I, that a bunch name? Of, it it – uh, I. So very quickly, I'll tell this story. Uh, um, to rule is the Estonian word for marketplace. <laughs> and sort of LY companies were sort of big at the time. Yeah. And so I went to a startup thing and uh, gave a little talk about my company. And I said, oh, to rule is the Estonian word. And a woman in the back, I swear to God, raised her hand and said, this is not correct. <laughs> <laughs> the word you should use is toured. <laughs> You should call your company Turdly. And I was like, Turdly? Really? Like, oh. So my wife came up. We have a mutt. And she looked down at the mutt. She said, why don't you go blog mutt? You guys are like a mutt. You're low maintenance. You don't know if you're happy, whatever. You'll do whatever comes along. And and it's been a great name. It really it served the company very well. So we both have our wives to thank for good names. Oh, absolutely. Yeah. Um, Among many other things. Okay. So you mentioned you're, you're trying to take this one state at a time. You're trying to fix the whole country. Right. Lock the clock. What's involved in that, um, and like, what what next steps do you have to achieve that? Well, this gets kind of deep in the legislative nerdy weeds. Uh, if you can give us a high level, the the high level is what what would work best. I think is if state legislatures would pass a resolution saying that I think we the people of insert state here think that we should lock the clock. And then I'm going to gather, gather those resolutions together, and I will present them to the Department of Transportation because ah. we don't actually even need an act of Congress. DOT could do this all on their own. Really? Yeah. So that's that's my plan because it's hard to get bills passed, but a resolution's a little easier to pass. I, I've been trying for years to get these guys to pass these resolutions with no like Arkansas wouldn't pass my stinking resolution, and then California came and passed it last year. So now I've got California done. So now I'm trying to get some other states to go on. How are you? I mean, because this strikes me as as more more than just sort of a pet project and more of a, a larf. Well, it goes. It, it depends. Like the last week, I haven't really been able to spend time on it. When it's right around the change, I end up spending a bunch of time. I would say that right now, it's about as much time as a. Like I know a lot of people that play a lot of golf and read a lot about golf and watch the Golf Channel. Sure. Uh, and I would say I spend about that much time on it. <laughs> That's, that's an interesting way of thinking about it. Yeah, since but, I don't play golf. But, I mean, since you're having to go to all these different states, are you self-financing this? Yeah. Uh, I mean, two I was able to drive to, and it was a nice little you know, yeah, chance for me to catch up on some phone calls and just think about stuff. I kind of like a road trip every once in a while. Sure. Who and doesn't? then, you know, uh, you know, flights aren't that, that much. And, like, Michigan, I was able to get in and out in a day. And okay. So it was not so, that bad. So, okay. So you're not spending a prohibitive amount of time and resources on this. but Right. I, I would call it more than just a leisure pursuit, though, yes? Oh, yeah. Yeah, absolutely. Yeah, I mean, it's, you know, if I can do it, <laughs> right? Yeah. Like, that's the first line of my obituary, <laughs> right? Right? Right. The guy who fixed daylight saving time died yesterday of, you know, natural causes surrounded by his friends and family or whatever. You know, like, that's that's the headline. Noteworthy, he did not die of a heart attack as a result of the time change. <laughs> yeah, exactly. <laughs> exactly. Which bears mention, I think. Right. Okay. When you are not trying to fix our uh, our daylight savings time, 
which, you know, I can tell you, you have my full support and where do I subscribe to your newsletter? <laughs> right. But, uh, what else are you up to now? You know, I, I've got a lot of little irons in the fire. I'm not, uh, I, I wrote a blog post about it cause you know, I sort of see the world through blog posts and, and the blog post started out with, uh, I don't really want to be a CEO again right now. Uh, I would like to be an entrepreneur in residence. I'd like to continue doing a lot of mentoring. So I'm doing a lot of mentoring. I'm doing a lot of talking to people. I'm talking to people about, entrepreneur in residence kinds of things. And, uh, you know, I'm really just uh, uh, trying to, you know, figure out how I can be a contributor. The funny part about writing a blog that says you don't want to be a CEO right now is that you get overwhelmed with people that say, hey, would you like to be the CEO of my little company? So I, I've had a lot of just conversations about that. And, yeah. uh, but, uh, you know, if anybody's listening, I really don't want to be a CEO right now. Uh, so yeah, this is not posturing, you know. No, <laughs> exactly. Yeah, I, I, I'm not. Uh, I'm not doing this to uh, to court offers, right? It's not like high school. Like, oh, I, you know, so many people are, you know, want to take me to the prom, and I know, you know, like it's. This is not that, right? I don't want a girlfriend right now. Yeah, Ooh, he seems unattainable. <laughs> yeah, must uh, have. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> well, uh, okay. Tell you what, Scott. This was uh, this was enormously entertaining and uh, and hugely illuminating, and just playing a lot of fun. Now is the time when we do plugs. So right. where can people find you? Uh, what do you want to plug? It's your time. You know, I, my personal site that I've got as uh, this was my little nerdy gift to myself when I sold my first company was uh, I actually had to wire money to the government of Trinidad and Tobago <laughs> uh, to get the domain SCO.TT. Oh, nice. And uh, I don't really do much with the main. I do more with SCO.TT slash time right now. So that's mm-hmm. the what's soon going to be lock the clock. I got to get, I got to incorporate that hashtag more. Yeah. Oh yeah. Um, so if you're interested in daylight saving time, there's all the information, all the research, all the stats, new England journal of medicine, all the blah, blah, blah. That's all on there. If you're a startup company and, uh, you're thinking that you don't know how to survive without venture capital and you can't imagine that there's some other way, uh, contact me through seo.tt and I will buy you coffee and beat you about the head and neck with a broken bottle and convince you that you can indeed do it without VC. So I'm always happy to have those conversations. That sounds like a useful and very violent solution <laughs> to a commonly held problem. <laughs> right. Uh, Scott Yates, this was an enormous pleasure and I wish you continued success. Thanks. Thanks. Great to be here. It's time to lock the clock and bring this week's episode to a close. Scott Yates, episode 131 of the John of All Trades podcast. It was a pleasure having you. I cannot tell you how much I enjoyed our chat. Just sitting around green spaces. That's my new co-working space. I've recorded two episodes there now. It's wonderful. Scott is a terrific dude. Check him out on the web, sco.tt. And while you're checking stuff out on the web, go to the John of All Trades homepage. I have a companion blog piece with all the links that Scott alluded to in this week's episode. It's jonofalltrades.us. John of All Trades podcast is a production of Deft Communications. Deft is on the web, D-E-F-T-C-O-M dot U-S. And our sponsor is 4Degrees, the number 4, D-E-G-R-E dot E-S. If you're planning a web campaign, need a website built, or better social media engagement, 4Degrees is the shop that you need because they will bring you the solutions that you crave at the prices you can afford. So give them a call, or better yet, go and visit them on the web. Number four, D-E-G-R-E dot E-S. The John of All Trades podcast is available on iTunes and Stitcher. Hit that subscribe button. Brand new episodes come right to your listening device without you having to do any work. We're also on the social media, so follow us there. Facebook, Twitter, Snapchat, Pinterest, all at the same handle, J-O-A-T-Pod. Facebook is the only place where you can find exclusive episode previews. Those go up on Monday. New episodes drop on Wednesday. Got a fresh one coming for you next Wednesday. We're going to shift gears a little bit. Very exciting, great conversation. Vital stuff in this day and age. And until we get together then, say goodnight, Tracy. That's good, Johnny.